I'm Robert Polly, and this is the Seventh Avenue Project. And uh, I am speaking to you just a couple of weeks after the centenary, the hundredth anniversary of the start of the First World War, the Great War, the war to end all wars, except all the wars it didn't end. It was uh, July 28, 1914, when Austria-Hungary declared war on Serbia, and the whole shooting match got going, and it didn't stop until a little more than four years later, after 37 million people, roughly, had been killed or wounded. Today, we're going to talk about uh, one of the more obscure chapters of the war, one that very few people were aware of, at least until this year, when it got renewed attention thanks to a best-selling graphic novel by Max Brooks. The graphic novel, or comic book, as I prefer to call it, and Max does too, is The Harlem Hellfighters. And it's the true tale of a black U.S. regiment who fought heroically on two fronts, against the Germans overseas and against relentless racism at home, even from the military establishment that was supposed to be supporting them. The movie rights have been optioned by Will Smith's production company, and Max is now working on the screenplay. Max Brooks uh, is probably best known for his contributions to zombie literature. He has been described as the best-selling zombie writer of all time, with hit books like The Zombie Survival Guide and World War Z. He and I talked about that part of his career, too. And we uh, talked about some of the obstacles he faced in becoming a successful writer. Those challenges included dyslexia, a lot of self-doubt, and being the son of two famous parents, Mel Brooks and Anne Bancroft. And uh, while you might think that latter bit would be helpful to a career, not so much for a guy who wanted to make his own name in the world and avoid being branded as a privileged celebrity brat. I really enjoyed talking to Max, and I learned a lot. I think you will, too, as you listen in on this interview. Stay tuned. Max, tell me about you and war, because I have the impression that it's something uh, you've thought about and written about, of course, for a long time. I have actually never been to war, but my father was. And I think probably my interest in war came from being raised by a World War II veteran and not a baby boomer. Uh, I grew up with stories of n- not just combat in Europe, but also the home front. It was inconceivable to me of an entire nation going to war, of rationing, sacrifice, blue stars or gold stars in the window. Uh, I-, I think that was an alien world for me, but it was also at the same time a fascinating world, and I think that became sort of a, a lifelong interest. I've read that when you were in college in the early 90s, uh, you joined the ROTC with the idea that you might end up fighting uh, in the Gulf War. Yeah, and basically all I did was fight down the urge to vomit after I ran track every morning, which was a fight I lost pretty much every morning. So that was the end of your military career, but um, were you serious about wanting to go and like take up arms and engage the enemy and all that stuff? Yeah, I, I was 18, and I... I was very liberal, still am, and I believed America had been very good to me, and I thought it was, it was my duty as a citizen to contribute. So my contribution was basically discovering that my feet are pronate. That's why you were discharged? or? Yeah, I mean, I, I never took the oath because I was only an MS-1, which is uh, your first year in the program. So basically what happened was, after about a year, I'd never done anything physical. I was never a jock. I was not into sports, still not. And then after a year of running on hard surfaces <clears throat> with no art support, 
and then getting shooting back pain, sciatica, um, knee pains, I was told that my, basically one knee points north, the other one points south. (laughs) That's a classic story. So 4F or whatever would have been the classification, I guess. But but, uh, did you regret that in in the years since? I mean, knowing what happened in the Gulf War, knowing how you've matured, do you kind of wish you had been in combat? I don't know if I'd wish I'd been in combat, but it would have been nice to have made some contribution in some way. I mean, the truth is, looking back, Desert Storm was a 100-hour war, so yeah, yeah. There, there, there wasn't much of a contribution. Uh, and I think that also, unfortunately, sets the tone for where we are as, as a country, where our leaders go out of the way to make sure that we don't have to contribute in any way. And, you know, we saw this right after 9-11 which was, I, I tend to think, is the greatest missed opportunity in the history of Western civilization. When President Bush literally said to us, pray, hug your children, and contribute to the economy. Uh-huh. Uh, and this, this was a time right after 9-11 when Americans, spoiled, lazy, self-centered, suddenly rediscovered our collective soul. And President Bush was given a willing nation of 300 million patriots. And he told us to go to the mall. As opposed to what? As opposed to saying, yes, there are many, many, many ways you can contribute. This is going to be a very, very long war. This is a war of ideology. This is a war of economics. Here's what you can do on the home front. Here's how we got into this war. Here's why 9-11 happened. And and this is also something that the United United States military bemoans. I, I have a lot of contacts now, ironically, because of World War Z in the U.S. military. <laughs> Interesting. What I have learned is something that we have forgotten, and I don't know when we forgot it, but everything is strategic. Things that you don't consider war effort is a war effort. Uh, education is strategic, because when you don't invest in education, who's going to join the military? You know, I have talked to a lot of generals and admirals who are tearing their hair out because our educational system is so broken that they have to spend half of these kids' enlistment period just getting them up to speed. And this is a time when the military is becoming so technical, and these kids don't even come in with the basic high school education. Uh, Nutrition is a strategic resource. Now, now, this all aside from whether we should be engaging militarily, you know, the way we have been, right? That's a totally different issue from what you're talking no, about. No, no, it's a, it's a, this is talking about response. Yeah, as yeah. far as engaging militarily, there's another lesson that we forgot. I mean, I think the lessons of World War II were, were so important, and we have let them languish. And one of the most important lessons that we took away from World War II is the burden of the victor. When you conquer a nation, you then have a responsibility to care for that nation. You know, Powell tried to explain that to Bush. (laughs) Pottery barn. Yeah, but but it's deeper than that, and it's not just Iraq. Everyone talks about how we dropped the ball rebuilding Iraq, but, you know, we dropped the ball on a much bigger country that nobody talks about, which is Russia. You know, I was in Russia right when communism fell, and they were ready, willing, and expectant that we would come in with a Marshall Plan, and we didn't do that. We had other problems. Ooh, which dot-com company to invest in? Mm-hmm. And we let Russia stagnate. And is it any mystery why they all glommed on to 
Putin, who is trying to rebuild the Soviet glory. You know, there was another time when we let a conquered country stagnate and another powerful strongman fill the vacuum. And you mean? 1918. You mean Germany. Yeah, and we, we learned a very important lesson in 1945. Well, we had to relearn the lesson of 1945 that we learned in 1919 is when you conquer a country, you have to go in and rebuild. And if you're in a war of ideologies, then it's even more important to give those conquered people an alternative to their beaten ideology. You have to show them why they should be on our side. You mentioned 1918, and I do want to shift our conversation at some point to the First World War. Um, we're talking only weeks after the 100th anniversary of the onset of the war. But before that, you mentioned, I think, what was your first war book, uh, World War Z, an oral history of the zombie war. Um, you know, a lot of people hearing that title would think, oh, just, you know, silly fantasy. But you're a very practical-minded guy, right? And yeah, I, I, I mean, well, that's a complimentary way of calling me OCD, but yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, people can gather from our conversation so far that you really, really care about policy, about international affairs, about conflict and its consequences, and you put some of that into World War Z. It's interesting, when I first heard about it and heard the phrase oral history, I thought, I immediately thought of The Good War by Studs Terkel, which was the best oral history of war I think I've ever read. And was the inspiration for World War Z. I know, and I didn't even realize that until I finally turned to the acknowledgments at the end of that book and saw that Studs was, you know, very high up on your list. I wish I had had the chance to meet him. That was my only disappointment of this whole process, was he died right after the book came out, and I never had the chance to to speak to him and tell him how much his book meant to a, a little dyslexic kid who in 1987 listened to the audiobook. Oh, is that right? Wow. Yeah. Wow. Um, I regret that I never met him, too, because he is the patron saint of a lot of documentary radio, too. I mean, real radio, the kind of radio that yeah. a lot of us aspire to do. He, he was the, one of the first. He, he was the man. What, what he did, which was, I thought, so revolutionary, well, maybe it wasn't so revolutionary, maybe, as you said, it's how it all should be, was he made it about them. And I'm 42 years old, so I've grown up in an era where the media has made the story about the storyteller. Mm -hmm. you know, That's uh, right. Brooks did, did a wonderful job of exposing that in broadcast news. Yes. But what I thought was so great about Seth Turkle was he made himself invisible, where it literally was just his subjects talking about their experiences. And I thought, when I'm going to write a fictional book, World War Z, uh, the character's going to be invisible, because it's not about him. It's about these people that he's talking to, mm -hmm. or maybe that she's talking to. We don't know who the uh, storyteller is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and another thing, it was about ordinary people in the war in a very unromantic, unglamorized, down-to-earth fashion in a way that I, for instance, and I think a lot of other people, had never seen World War II cast. I mean, we yeah. always got the cleaned-up fictional version of World War II. We did not hear what it was like to be uh, gay and uh, in the right. Army. We did not hear what it was like to be really fighting in the Pacific and as an American not only experiencing atrocities, but sometimes committing them, you know? Yeah. Uh, stuff so I, like that. That's, that's, a, that's a very astute assessment of the good war, because I, I think this is something that we have tended to forget, and I think this is something that Hollywood bears the part of the blame for, is creating heroes in uh, a war of populations. And yes. the truth is, yeah. 
we always admire the Medal of Honor winners, as we should. But the truth is, World War II was not won by heroes. It was won by, by all of America being just a tiny little bit heroic. Uh, you know, that's how countries accomplish great deeds, is not with one person raising a flag on a hill. It's with everybody just doing what they have to do. Um, you know, another person... I really wish I had met who also wrote about war, including uh, both the First and the Second World War, in a way that was starkly realistic and de-romanticized was Paul Fussell. Have you read his books? The oh, group? no, I haven't. I, I, uh, he's definitely on my list. Everyone tells me I've got to read him. You do. You've got to read The Great War in Modern Memory about World War mm. I, uh, absolute classic and indispensable book. And there's another one called Wartime, which strips away the myths of how wars are really fought. And then his own memoir, uh, which is, I think it's called The Making of a Cynic. And it talks about his experiences fighting in Europe in World War II. So you've got to read those, Max. That's on your list. Um, and it, it takes me back to a couple of things. I think he fought in and around the Battle of the Bulge, oh. which which your dad did also, right? I mean, did my dad. He was in, he was in the mop-up. He was in the... Uh the combat engineers clearing mines and booby traps. I, I've read, and by the way, your dad is, is Mel Brooks, but he was at that time uh, Melvin uh, Kaminsky, Kaminsky. Kaminsky. Melvin Kaminsky. Did he experience some anti-Semitism in the Army? Is that true? Well, you know, asking a Jew if he experienced anti-Semitism <laughs> in the Army in 1945, you know. Dumb question? It, okay. Yeah, I, I think that goes without saying. I think what was surprising to him, was experiencing institutionalized anti-German sentiment from his own officers. When you say anti-German sentiment, you don't just mean against the Nazis. No, no, no. Well, what had happened was this was very typical Army bureaucratic policy, was when the United States Army officially crossed into Germany, all German-Americans were questioned by their officers. Uh, you know, how do you feel about fighting on the land of your, of your ancestors. Oh, I see this, yeah. How, how, yeah. yeah. how do you feel about possibly pulling the trigger on a member of what could be your family? Uh, this was standard policy with Germans, but because we're talking about the United States Army, there was not a lot of common sense thrown in there. So my dad was brought in and, and questioned by his officers, how do you feel as a German-American? Uh, to which my dad, you know, would say, you do, you do <laughs> know that I'm Jewish, and you do know that... Uh, we're not exactly beloved by the Germans at this point. Was his ancestry from Germany? Yeah. Oh, I didn't he's, know that. His father, Maximilian Kaminsky, who you the man were named I after, my name from, yeah. was a proud subject of Kaiser Wilhelm. And this is actually something that uh, a lot of non-Jews don't really understand about the Holocaust, which is there are different types of Jews, and Russian Jews, you know, Eastern European Jews were very isolated. They never considered themselves Russian or Polish right, or right, Jews. Right. Whereas German Jews were proud subjects of, of the Kaiserreich. Many had fought for Kaiser Wilhelm in World War I. Uh, they considered themselves as assimilated and German as everyone else. So for them, it was a true shock when they were herded onto trains and sent to Dachau. Yeah, they were certainly considered among Europe's most assimilated Jews, maybe the most. So yeah, yeah, yeah. That was that was a very sort of uh, a very big deal for them to be German. They were German first, right? And and I think that is unfortunately one of one of the lessons a lot of Jews have taken away from the Holocaust is, you know, you're always 
Jew first. Although, you know, strange enough, the irony is my wife's cousin just got married. He's an Iraqi Jew. He married an Iranian Jew. And their Jewishness is completely polar opposite. Oh, really? How so? Well, Iraqi Jews, as I've been told by his family, are, are Jews first, who just happen to live in this, this artificial construct of a country called Iraq. Mm-hmm. They're not Iraqis. They're not Iraqis any more than, than the Kurds, the Sunnis. Nobody's an Iraqi first. Mm. Mm. Whereas his wife's family, they are Persian. Uh-huh. They are Iranian first. There is such a strong patriotism among the Iranian Jewish community that if, if Iran ever went to war again, there's a chance that some of these young men and women would actually go back to fight for Iran. I mean, Jews were persecuted along with other religious minorities after the revolution in the 70s, weren't they? They were persecuted, but they, but they were not so persecuted that it erased their identity. Wow. Okay, I didn't know you that. Know. Well, Max, you know, the one reason I, I raised your dad's experience in the Army in World War II and anti-Semitism was I was wondering if perhaps that was on your mind at all when you got interested in the story of the Harlem Hellfighters, this regiment of African Americans in World War I who experienced, you know, tons of racism. Uh, was that something you were thinking about? I was more thinking about uh, the, uh, a kind of injustice that was completely alien to my world. Because when I first heard about it, I was 11 years old. You know, when you're a white kid uh, on the west side of L.A. with more than enough money, that kind of injustice could not be more alien. Uh, the, the notion that our own government would set up its own soldiers to fail in a war that was literally being waged to make the world safer democracy. It, it was just unheard of for me. That was, that was sort of my introduction to the grand hypocrisy that is the human experience. Uh-huh. You, you were aware of racial injustice before that, yeah? I was a, I was a little bit, you know. You, you grew, like I said, you grow up on, in, in L.A., but you're 11 years old. You have your Martin Luther King Day. Right. Uh, you know, I watched the blue and the gray, so I knew there was a thing called the Civil War and slavery. <laughs> so I was, I was aware. I grew up in a, in a very liberal environment. But uh, as, a, as a good liberal, I was raised to believe that this did not affect me in any way, nor was, nor was I part of this in any way. Uh-huh. Really interesting that your real sort of um, initiation into, like, America's messed up racial past was through this obscure story. I mean, it was obscure at that time, right? Oh, it, was ex- it was extremely obscure. Well, my real introduction was through a young man who worked for my parents, and uh, he was from Rhodesia. He was an Englishman. Actually, he was Jewish. Uh, and his own family history was one of, of intolerance. He, like many Jews, had tried to get into the United States during the Holocaust, and America had turned them away. Now, this British colony of Rhodesia, now Zimbabwe, let them in. Wow. So that's where he grew up. Which is why you see Jewish communities in these sort of obscure countries, like uh, places in Latin America or South Africa, because during the Holocaust, these were the only countries that let Jews in. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so this was one of many conversations we had had, but I never forgot the story of the Hellfighters. I mean, not just because they experienced uh, racial intolerance, but because they triumphed in spite of it. You acknowledge your wife, Michelle, who, quote, believed in the project for 15 years. So you'd been mulling it over, tossing it around, trying to get it going for quite a long time. Well, you figure I had been thinking about it and studying it since I was 11. 
Wow. And that's, that's <laughs> sort of phase one of the story was the studying and, and the interest and, and the shocking discovery of how little anybody knew about it. Uh, phase two was the actual writing, which I started in, in 1997, 98 as a movie script and trying to pitch it around town and, you know, basically being told I was nuts. Now, why? That was after the movie Glory was made about the Black Regiment in, in the Civil War, right? So Exactly. We're done. We've done it. Oh, is that we right? We are black guys oh, in no. war. Oh, no. We've checked that box. Hollywood no has one box for that. Wow. And then, of course... Yeah, no, they only... As, uh, as uh, Mario Van Peebles said brilliantly through his character of Bill Cosby in Badass, they get three strikes. We only get one. <laughs> That was a good uh, movie, by the way. Uh, oh, it was a great movie. movie about his but father. I was told, I was told we're, we're done. And then actually, um, another man sort of broke it down for me. His name is Steve Duncan, and he created the TV show Tour of Duty, which I loved as a kid. And he wasn't talking to me in terms of Harlem Hellfighters. I took a screenwriting class with him. And he had said to all of us, just as a general rule, uh, if you make your characters young white males, you open more doors simply because there are more young white males starring in movies in Hollywood. I mean, there's, there's just more opportunity there. If you make them a non-white character, how many bankable non-white stars are there in Hollywood? Man. And he was talking just pure economics. Yeah, yeah. Which, which was very true. Uh, I mean, the only reason I thought I had a shot in the 90s was because TNT had made Buffalo Soldiers, Danny Glover's movie, and HBO had made the first Tuskegee Airmen. Right, right. L- Lawrence Fishburne, Cuba Gooding Jr., Malcolm Jamal Warner, uh, and Courtney B. Vance, who's brilliant in that. Uh, so I thought, okay, maybe, maybe now is the time. And also, A&E had made Lost Battalion with Ricky Schroeder. So I thought, hey, maybe the planets are aligning. So wrote the script... Uh, pitched it all over town. Nobody wanted it. And I was ready to just sort of, you know, give it up as well. Nice try, kid. And then I met LeVar Burton, who changed everything. How's that? Well, we had a friend, Randy Auerbach, who's a producer, and she said, I know LeVar. Maybe I can get him the script. And he read it. He wanted me to come in and meet with him. And he sat me down. He said, look, I, I love it. And I would make this in a heartbeat if somebody would let me make it, but I don't have the power to do this. But I'm not going to give up. And you shouldn't either. And then he said something that I don't even think he knew sort of flipped the switch with me, which was there's more than a few of these Harlem Hellfighter scripts making the rounds in Hollywood right now, but yours comes closest to the truth. And, you know, he didn't know that I was dyslexic. He didn't know that school and I had never been on speaking terms. He also probably didn't know how much of a Star Trek fan I was, but when Commander Jordy LaForge tells this dyslexic <laughs> kid who was lucky to pull off a C that he had done his homework well, well, that's the best compliment you can get. So the, the dyslexia really was kind of a, a stigma or a monkey on your back? Well, yeah, because it doesn't take a lot to internalize a narrative of failure when you work twice as hard as the other kids and do half as well. I think the dyslexia sort of became uh, a monster within itself because it created such an internal anxiety and lack of self-esteem that it got to the point where I think by the end of my formal education, dyslexia was maybe only, I don't know, uh, a quarter of the problem, maybe 10% of my problem. But all the rest was the internalized cumulative anxiety that when I sat down Mm -hmm. to take a test or started to take a class, I began the process as a loser. 
Was it even worse being the the son of two famous parents? Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, you got to think that I wasn't into sports. Still not. Still don't get it. So <laughs> I couldn't shine in, I couldn't, in, in that area. I couldn't, I couldn't receive self-esteem and accolades from, from sports. So all I had left in school was academia, uh, which was a disaster. So when, you're, when you are the child of these two very successful people, and you're lucky to pull off a C, and it's not because you're lazy or partying. You're, you're doing everything you're supposed to do. You're following your orders, and yet you're coming up short. Well, it, it doesn't take long before that starts to chip away at your sense of self. Hmm. So after this, you know, this encouragement from LeVar Burton, after learning that there were other scripts making the rounds, but yours might have been the very best and the most historically informed um, at what point did you turn to the medium of the graphic novel? That was years later. There was, there was ah. a period which was a sort of tending the fire. Uh-huh. Uh, and that I have to give 100% credit to my friend Dean Edwards, who was my office mate on Saturday Night Live. Right, right, yeah. He wrote and, for Saturday Night Live like you did. Uh, yeah, we, we came on at the same time. We call ourselves the class of 9-11. Uh-huh. He literally came on uh, about a month before 9-11 happened. Wow. So... I didn't have much time to think about the Hellfighters. I, I had a job in front of me I had to do. And yet there was a moment where Dean had said to me, he always wanted to do a death scene. He said, oh, I'd love to, you know, in a movie, you, you look over a wall or around a corner, you get shot in the head. Said, Funny you should say that, Dean. <laughs> I, I told him about the script. He got very excited. And every, every so often he would keep encouraging me, hey, what's happening with that? What's going on with that? You shouldn't, you shouldn't give up on that. So he was my cheerleader at a time when I shouldn't even have been thinking about it. And so years later, when I started to write comic books, and Random House said to me, what's your next project? I said, this is it. By the way, I'm glad you said comic books. I was using the fancy term graphic novel, uh, which I'm not that fond of. You no, know? Me, me neither. And, and I think that is, I think unfortunately, many in the comic book industry have fallen for the same self-deprecation that liberals do now that liberals are too afraid to call themselves liberals, right, right. progressive. <laughs> yep. They, they have essentially let their enemies redefine them. <laughs> and, and in some ways, the comic book industry does that too, because even people within the comic book world don't use the term comic book because they think it implies bam pow superheroes. Right. Which, incidentally, by the way, uh, what's wrong with that? I learned more about. Uh, Reagan's Urban America from Dark Knight that I ever did anywhere else. Yeah, I was a comic book kid, too. Uh, yeah, yeah, I learned a lot about comic You know, I actually, the first time I ever sat down and read just by myself was when I sat down and read Rom the Space Knight uh, first annual, uh, cover to cover. Because for me, reading, oh my God, don't ask me to read for fun. Are you kidding? I can barely read. But the combination of, of the words and the images was enough to get you into it. And, uh... Yes. The images hooked me. And the irony of it is I then took that lesson, and I've now got my son to read. Cool. Because my son, was not a, he's not a reader. He's nine years old. He's a boy. And let's be honest, the education system is not exactly boy-friendly. He hated reading. To him, reading was a chore. So what I did was I knew he was kind of interested a little bit in history. So I got in historical graphic novels, uh, sort of the lives of presidents or famous battles or famous inventors or famous incidents, and they're very short. And he now 
reads himself to sleep every night. He's now reading to me and my wife about the America's industrial era. Has he read your stuff? Not yet. Not yet. Well, my stuff's pretty violent. I was going to say, I was going to say, do you let your nine-year-old read this violent stuff that you've created? Uh, no. And, and the irony is, I, I think I'm in the minority in this country because violence is totally okay in this country. Mm-hmm. Boobies, not so much. Mm-hmm. I literally once was at Comic-Con and a woman asked me in the audience if World War Z was okay for her uh, 12-year-old son. I said, I don't know about that. I mean, there's there's nuclear war, there's cannibalism, there's parents killing their children. Uh, <laughs> and she said, oh, no, 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 no. What I'm talking about is their sex. The sex, right. I said, no, ma'am, there's no boobies in it. And sure enough, she bought a copy for a 12-year-old. <laughs> oh, but uh, you carrying that that stigma of dyslexia, thinking there was little you could do to distinguish yourself academically, and then ultimately turning to a medium that itself is kind of stigmatized as lowbrow. Oh, yeah. Was that ever like? Was that a sensitive thing for you? Like, oh, I'm going to create a comic book. People are going to think I'm still kind of juvenile or something. Oh yeah, but you know, me and stigma, we're good friends. We're roommates. <laughs> Because uh, you got to remember, there's always a stigma of me. I'm also Mel Brooks's son, so I've spent my my whole life uh, trying to dispel preconceived notions that you'd had a silver spoon in your mouth, you were a legacy kid, that kind of thing. Yeah, and I think there there is a stigma of legacy kids that you're essentially a lazy loser riding your parents' coattails. Which, let's be honest, the Bush administration didn't help that. <laughs> you mean George W. George W. And the truth is. Like all stereotypes, there's always a kernel of truth somewhere out there. I've seen that a lot. I've seen some legacy kids which are super hard workers and use that amazing opportunity of their birth to propel themselves forward. And then I've met a lot of legacy kids who just languish and waste this opportunity and 200 years ago would be perfect bait for the guillotine. so, but when I when I went into this with Harlem Hellfighters, I knew it was an uphill battle. But let's not forget, before that, I was trying to make people take zombies seriously, and before that, I was trying to make people take me seriously as Mel Brooks's kid. So I've sort of always been proving myself. What kinds of things did you do to to prove yourself to people who might have doubted your metal? You know, your own drive and and skills. Well, I think just hard work. Uh-huh. I, I think just doing the best I can and working as hard, if not harder, than other people, and also not using my parents' name, because unfortunately, using my parents' name doesn't help me. You know, if I wanted to be a dramatic actor, then being the son of Anne Bancroft would be great. <laughs> if I wanted to be a comedian, being the son of Mel Brooks would be great. But to be an author, that you can't build on that. Mm-hmm. Uh, that doesn't that doesn't help you. And indeed, when Zombie Survival Guide came out, it almost destroyed me. How so? Well, because nobody knew what to make of it. Zombies were not popular back then. This is 2003. And so the marketing team at Random House, even my own book agent, tried to position me as Mel Brooks's son has written The Blazing Saddles of Zombies. Oh, no. Which it isn't at all in any which, way. Which almost annihilated me among the horror fans. Oh, wow. Uh, and so this is why I thank my wife with everything I do. She was the one who said, you have to do your own grassroots marketing. You have to reach out to Fangoria Magazine, do some interviews with them. You have to start doing horror conventions and literally talk to people one-on-one and convince them 
that you're not Mel Brooks's brat urinating on what they value. <laughs> oh, man. And, and tell me, why, though, why are zombie subjects so popular these days? Well, I think, unfortunately, at this point, we're, we're on the bandwagon phase where the popularity of zombies has attracted people who just are trying to make a buck, who are rapidly sure. diluting any yeah. good material that's out there. But I think the initial interest in zombies was the fact that we were living in very dangerous, scary times. And zombie stories allow us to explore apocalyptic scenarios without it being too real. You know, the, the catalyst for everything that you would see in a Katrina-style situation allows you to still sleep at night because it's fictional. Mm -hmm. I've always said, if you want to clear a room, talk about how you would prepare for the next pandemic. But if you want to start a lively conversation, ask people how you would prepare for a zombie plague. <laughs> Which is a, it follows a disease model, you know, it's a and contagion. It's the exact same stuff. Yeah. I mean, people ask me, do I have a zombie kit in my house? I go, yeah, it's my earthquake kit. It's right, the same right. stuff. Yeah, I was thinking about this. Uh, what is it about zombies? And you know, the zombie fiction tends to be very practical. Uh, the zombies behave according yeah. to rules. You know exactly what they can do and can't do. You know how their disease spreads in a way. And all of the zombie literature and movies and TV shows is about survival, uh, about solving practical problems. Oh, yeah. Uh, I mean, the, the original Dawn of the Dead was, I think, one of the greatest disaster preparedness movies right, ever made. Right, right, right. Uh, every other monster movie, uh, there's always some scientist trying to have some super bullet that's going to save us all carried by a hero. Whereas good zombie stories are all about getting bottled water and how exactly. we're going to get food exactly. and you know, make our own penicillin. People have asked me, would I ever want to make a zombie video game? And I would say, it'd probably be really boring. It'd be just you boiling water for eight hours. <laughs> Boarding up the windows, things like that. Yeah, it would literally be like, let's dig a latrine. <laughs> that reminds me, along with Studs Terkel, another person you sort of dedicated uh, World War Z to was George Romero. Uh, oh, of course, yeah. Night of the Living Dead. And, you know, we keep circling around and not really getting to the Harlem Hellfighters, but it reminds <laughs> me that in addition to being the first really big zombie movie, uh, Night of the Living Dead had a racial element. Once again, the hero was black, and society rewarded him by... By shooting him. Well, uh, you know, here's the funny thing about Romero. Romero actually leapfrogged over all that liberal affirmative action political correctness. Uh, because instead of casting a black man, he cast the best man who happened to be black. Because let, let us all forget that, that once all our finger wagging is over, uh, the whole point of any kind of social crusade is to see people as individuals and judge them on their merits not because they're part of some tribe. And that's what Romero did. He had an open casting call, and the guy who read the best for Ben happened to be a black guy, and he cast him. Uh, you know, honestly, I thought he really wanted to make a point by choosing no, a black no, his, actor. His goal was, I need the best possible actors I can find. Wow, what a novel idea. Yeah, what a crazy idea to actually judge a man by the content of his character. Yeah, right, and his acting abilities, which was ex yeah. extremely rare in those days. Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, um, before we uh, use up all our time, let's talk about the story of the Harlem Hellfighters. We haven't even told our audience what it is. Uh, right. Maybe you can encapsulate it. 
1917, the United States government entered World War I to make the world safe for democracy. In Woodrow Wilson's words. In Woodrow Wilson's words, we will make the world safe for democracy. This was the first war that the United States fought simply for ideals. Unfortunately, it didn't exactly live up to those ideals. And that is portrayed in the story of the Harlem Hellfighters, an African-American National Guard unit that was literally set up to fail by its own government. They were given poor training. They had to train with broomsticks instead of rifles. Uh, They were sent to the South, hoping there'd be a race riot. When they were finally sent overseas, they were made to do manual labor instead of fighting. And then when they did demand to be put into combat, they were thrown away and given to the French army. Yeah, that was a really fascinating uh, element of the story that I wasn't aware of at all. Uh, In your graphic novel, or excuse me, in your comic book, The Harlem Hellfighters, you can see them. They're wearing French helmets. They're U.S. troops wearing French helmets. It is very rare because the French army... Uh, had been bled white by this point. And this is actually something that happens in war a lot, which is desperation erases the luxury of prejudice. Mm. You know, it's, it's all well and good to have your prejudices, uh, but when your back is up against the wall, you simply don't have that luxury anymore. Now, the French had also had very good luck with their black African troops, their Moroccans and their Senegalese. Their West African troops had fought magnificently on the battlefield, uh, so much so that I, I believe the French, in their reverse racism, thought all black people were magnificent warriors. Mm-hmm. And so when the United States government offered them a unit of black soldiers, I suspect the French government thought, oh my God, more black people? Great. Now, they were given French equipment. They, these men were stripped of everything but their uniforms when they were transferred. They weren't allowed to take their amazing Springfield rifles, Uh, their first-rate American equipment. They were given shoddy old French weapons and French gear. Uh, And this is not an insult on the French part. The French gave all their soldiers shoddy gear. Right. This This is a country that was teetering on the verge of collapse. And yet, despite all this sabotage by their own government, they came home with one of the most decorated units in the whole U.S. Army. Um, among the indignities and mistreatment they had to endure, along with the things you've already mentioned, um... Before they were sent overseas, uh, they were at some point stationed in the South, and these guys who were soldiers about to be go to war had to put up with all kinds of humiliations and insults and, and attacks from white citizens. Yeah. Uh, once over there, and treated pretty well by the French, treated as equals in many ways, yeah. there's this extraordinary thing that happened, and you, um, you quote from this document that was sent to the French by, I guess, by the American military command, uh, telling them not to get too cozy with these black soldiers. Basically what happened was the Harlem Hellfighters were one of the first American units to see combat. And one of the first American heroes of the war was Henry Johnson. He won the French Croix de Guerre. He was the first American to win it, black or white. This is Uh, roughly the equivalent of the Medal of Honor? I think, I, think, I think it's more like the Distinguished Service Cross. Okay. But fighting hand-to-hand in the middle of no man's land, fighting off an entire platoon of German shock troops. So he became one of our first heroes. The Hellfighters started to win glory on the battlefield as a unit, and their regimental band, Jim Europe, is bringing jazz to France. 
so that you've got this unit that is starting to be treated like the heroes that they are. And that terrified the United States Army. So they sent this memorandum to the French, which essentially said, look, you've got to help us out here. Please don't treat them like first-class citizens and send them home you know, with swelled heads. It's just going to make it so much harder to beat them back down into second-class citizen status. So do us a solid, and here's a few helpful pointers on how to treat them like dirt. I want to I want to quote from this thing. I I googled it and the copy I came up with was uh printed in The Crisis, which was the magazine of the uh NAACP yep. under uh WEB Du Bois, who actually is featured though not named in the Harlem Hellfighters book. Uh yes. you, you've got yeah, a little bit a character of character in it. Yeah, yeah. But this is a this is a like a memorandum sent by the US military to the French. Uh, labeled Secret Information Concerning Black American Troops. And let's remember that these are guys who are laying down their lives, fighting nobly, uh, <laughs> without reward, safe for democracy. And, and helping the French out in a huge way. And, and here's how it starts. It is important for French officers who have been called upon to exercise command over black American troops or to live in close contact with them to have an exact idea of the position occupied by Negroes in the United States. The information set forth in the following communication ought to be given to these officers, and it is in their interest to have these matters known and widely disseminated. So it starts out by saying, The American attitude upon the Negro question may seem a matter for discussion to many French minds, but we French, I don't know why it says we French, because it's coming from the Americans, uh, uh, but we French are not in our province if we undertake to discuss what some call prejudice. American opinion is unanimous on the color question and does not admit of any discussion. It goes on to say, we must prevent the rise of any pronounced degree of intimacy between French officers and black officers. Another another part, it says, the vices of the Negro are a constant menace to the American who has to repress them sternly. Um, it's amazing. It's amazing. It really is. You know, this is 1917. Uh, yeah, I mean, racism was running high in America, as as your book points out. Um, Birth of a Nation, the D.W. Griffith film, virulently racist, had just come out a couple years before. The Klan was on the rise. Yeah, it's it's a shameful episode, and um, I'm reading from the uh, Publishers Weekly short review of the book. It says, Brooks, you, that is, yeah. Brooks' text seethes with rage at the soldier's mistreatment. Um, were you angry as you as you wrote about this and contemplated it? Oh yeah, I mean, it, it was it, it was outrageous uh, that the U.S. government would do this. And then, as a, as I got older and I read more about the context in which it was written, I got even angrier because it dawned on me that this was America's first war of ideals, and this is actually a national debate that we have to this day. You mean right you, you wouldn't count the Civil War? You wouldn't count the Civil War in that? No, 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 because the Civil War had concrete goals: preserve the Union. But not end slavery, you think? Uh, slavery came later. And in fact, Lincoln has said, and he was, he was open about it, hey, if I, could, if I could preserve the Union by freeing all of them, I would. If I could preserve the Union by freeing none of them, I would. There, you know, the men who marched off to battle on their own home turf were literally to preserve their nation. That, that's the, you don't get any more concrete than your nation being torn in half. World War I is over there. Why would we send our young people and spend our tr national treasure over there? Well, Wilson said we need to do it for ideals, to make the world safe for democracy. 
And yet this is a time when women were not allowed to vote yet, and black people were treated worse than animals. And Mr. Wilson himself was a fan, apparently, of Birth of a Nation. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, and this is something that, that we, we need to remember. What we consider to be a horrendous bigot at the time was just being a normal white dude in 1917. Mm-hmm. You know, bigotry, and this is something I've learned as I've gotten older, uh, bigotry is relative, and, and it takes the goalpost being shifted to recognize your own bigotry. And I say this as a member of America's last sanctioned homophobic generation. You know, and this is very important because I'm of a generation where when I was a teenager, it was completely okay for Sam Kinison to stand up in front of a crowd of 100,000 people and talk about AIDS by saying, thanks, fags, thanks for giving us the Black Plague of the 80s, and then to have that 100,000 people stand up and cheer. And where, where fag was just an almost universal insult among teenage right. boys. Yeah, Yeah, I mean, that's, that's what you would say to people. Yeah, yeah. Now, that is as incomprehensible to my nine-year-old son as this kind of racism in the Hellfighters is to me. And I think for me, my personal connection to the Hellfighters, if, I, if people ask me if I identify with any of the characters, and I think I do. I think more than anyone, I identify with Irvin S. Cobb. Oh, wow. Let's talk about him. I wanted to ask you about him. Yeah, I mean, I think for, for me, that's the one guy that I could probably and shamefully identify with, because he was, uh, well, we would call him a, a crazy racist. Really? So he was a journalist and also, I guess, a humorist, uh, wrote for the Saturday yeah. Evening Post. In, in what way was he a bigot? He was a confirmed bigot and never never missed an opportunity to make fun of black people. And he had a tremendous change of heart when he witnessed the heroism of Henry Johnson. And he wrote this beautiful piece, which basically talked about, about the N-word. And he basically said that this word has been uttered billions of times, sometimes in humor, sometimes in hate, but never, never failed to leave the sting on, on the black heart. And he said, but from this point on, the letters N-I-G-G-E-R will simply be another way of spelling American. Yeah, so he he got wind of this story of Johnson, who had manned this remote outpost in no man's land. And yeah. he and another guy, uh, Needham... Um, Needham Roberts, Private Needham, Roberts. Right, both defeated a large number of uh, German troops uh, Yeah, by, and at, at one point it was just Johnson, because Roberts had been so wounded, the Germans were carrying him away to interrogate him. And Johnson fought them all off with nothing more than a knife because he, his rifle had run out of bullets. It, it only carried three shots. Uh, he had already been wounded, and it literally was, was hand-to-hand combat. And I want to read a little bit from um, what this guy, um, what's his name again? Irvin S. Cobb. Irvin S. Cobb. This, a southern journalist who had been a bigot, what he wrote about this act of bravery If ever proof was needed, which it is not, that the color of a man's skin has nothing to do with the color of his soul, this twain, meaning those two soldiers, then and there offered it in abundance. They were soldiers who wore their uniforms with a smartened pride, who expressed a sincere, heartfelt inclination to get a whack at their foe. Uh, As a result of what our black soldiers are going to do in this war, a word that has been uttered billions of times, sometimes in derision, sometimes, sometimes in hate, 
but which I am sure never fell on black ears, but it left a sting in the heart, is going to have a new meaning for all of us. And that hereafter, N-I-G-G-E-R, will merely be another way of spelling the word American. It's an odd way of putting it to say that that word, you know, means American, but I I see what he's getting at, and it's pretty amazing for him to have had that turnaround, I guess, given his background. Well, and I think I think uh, Urban S. Cobb's change of heart completely encapsulates the exact terror of America's status quo. I mean, I, I think if think if we could if we could write a simplistic scene of what the Hellfighters were up against, it would be uh, the power lords of America reading Irvin S. Cobb's article saying, oh my God, if they can change his mind, what the hell are they capable of doing to other people's minds? We've got to shut them down. So tell me, Max, I mean, I'm, I'm sure you've thought about this a lot. What fuels a sort of racism that even when presented with evidence that everything you say about another race is wrong clings to that idea? In fact, fear is letting go of that idea. What makes that happen? You know, I think there's a, there's a terror of change. And, and I think that the, that's part of human nature. We're always afraid of what's different. And we're always afraid of getting out of our comfort zone because we know how to operate in our comfort zone. I think there's always a, a terror of being a stranger. I mean, you see that in politics. If you are trying to woo young voters, you always talk about change, making a different world. If you're trying to woo older voters, you always talk about a return to the way things used to be. And that makes them feel better. And I think this was a time of tremendous change. Uh, but, you know, I think particularly with racism against black people, World War I exposed the real violent racism of the North. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, during the Civil War... Black soldiers had actually been given a fair share of medals. They'd been given a fair share of accolades, uh, but not for their sake, as a way to humiliate the South. They were a convenient political tool at the time. Uh, whereas in World War I, there was no need to do that. So there was this need to repress them sternly, because this was a time when blacks were migrating to the North uh, in vast numbers to work in factories. And that was terrifying to the North status quo. You know, I think it's one thing to, to free black people in the South as long as they stayed in the South, but to, to have them move into your neighborhood, to have political power like the NAACP to, to make sure that they're voting and, and taking a hand in politics, well, that, that was too much for the status quo. You know, I was thinking also another reason why some whites held fast and obviously continue to hold fast to racist ideas despite all evidence to the contrary, is because to to change their minds would be to admit that, you know, huge sins had been committed, uh, right? It would be to, to really see how how atrocious, you know, slavery and Jim Crow yeah. and everything that's come since has been. I think you really hit the, the nail on the head. This is how I tried to explain racism to my son when he asked me about slavery. And the best I could come up with was, when slavery had begun, uh, the people who owned the slaves were good Christians. Right. And the Bible teaches right. that you simply cannot treat human beings this way. So the only way they could still have slaves was to not imagine that their slaves were human beings. If you dehumanize them, if, if you pretend that they are an inferior species, that they're no better than animals, 
Well, then that justifies the cruelty, because they've got to be put in their place. Uh, but if suddenly you acknowledge that these are as human as you are, well, then what does that make you? Maybe that makes exactly. you less than them. Yep. I mean, and the funny thing was, you know, getting back to the violent racism, the fear of the North, uh, I had had a personal experience with that through my mother's stories. I'm sorry, when my mother presented the Academy Award to Sidney Poitier, and she gave him a little kiss on the cheek, which is what you're supposed to do, by the way, back then. Was this for which movie? Um, It wasn't Slender Thread. It wasn't Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. I think it was after that. Okay. Uh, you can actually find the footage of it online. I just saw it. You know, the tradition was a pretty girl gives the Oscar to the guy and gives a little peck on the cheek. That's right. what you do. Right. And if it had it been David Niven, it would have been fine. Yeah, right. But you should have seen the hate mail my mom got afterwards. Oh, wow. Now, the irony was the violent death threats were not from the South. The South was much more condescending. You know, why would you do that? That's silly. You know, they're not like us. The North was, if I ever see you on the street. You know, that really betrays the racism of the North. Those were the days when those were actual handwritten letters. Oh, yeah. This is the day when people actually took the time to write out on a piece of paper and lick a stamp. And, you know, this, this was before you had lazy haters of the Internet. <laughs> right, right. You really had to hate to do this. <laughs> right. You really, you had to be a motivated hater yeah. to mail a letter. Wow. And your mom got tons of it, huh? Yeah, and she was terrified. Ugh, that's incredible. You know, I looked up uh, Henry Lincoln Johnson, the heroic soldier we were talking about who got the Croix de Guerre in, in France, uh, to find out what happened to him after right. he got back. Now, I'm assuming the Wikipedia article is accurate. Here's what it says. Returning home, Sergeant Johnson was paid to take part in a series of lecture tours. He appeared one evening in St. Louis, and instead of delivering the expected tale of racial harmony in the trenches, he instead revealed the abuse black soldiers had suffered, such as white soldiers refusing to share trenches with blacks. Soon after this, a warrant was issued for Johnson's arrest for wearing his uniform beyond the prescribed date of his commission, and paid lecturing engagements dried up. Johnson died in New Lenox, Illinois, at the Veterans Hospital on July 5, 1929, only about 10 years after the war ended, penniless, estranged from his wife and family, and without official recognition from the U.S. government. He's buried at Arlington National Cemetery. Yeah. You know, unfortunately, and, and you know, I wish this was not the case, but unfortunately the, the, the ending of Henry Johnson is, is not unusual for America's war heroes. You know, that instant fame being confronted with the truth and then having to deliver a narrative which is simply untrue weighs very heavily on these, on these young men. And with Johnson, it was even worse because he was told uh, to spread the word that everything had been hunky-dory in the trenches. And when he tried to tell the truth, we all saw that happened. Uh, he wasn't the only hellfighter that returned uh, to a rough welcome. James Reese Europe is considered by many one of the founding fathers of jazz. And the reason he's not as well-known as Duke Ellington is because he was murdered by one of his own bandmates right after they got home. James Reese Europe, the uh, band leader, in fact, uh, I think it's time for a little musical break in this interview. (laughs) You have him in in the book. He was the leader of the uh, 369th Infantry Hellfighters Band, which, you know, as you said, uh, helped introduce Europe. He had an amazing coincidence, his last name to jazz. 
Uh, and there are recordings of the band. Uh, I want to play one. It's called On Patrol in No Man's Land. You quote from it in the book. Come in, look out! Hear them roar, there's one more, and that's as a very light. Don't gasp for the find you all right. Don't start the bumming with those hand grenades. And machine gun, holy space. Alert, gas, put on your mask. Adjust the correct playing and hurry up fast. Drop, there's a rocket for the bus barrage. Down, hug the ground, close so you can, don't stand. Creep and crawl, or follow me, that's all. The boys! Go do it! Hey! Hey! Get the bloody boys! Get them! Stick them with the banners on the rabbit What do you hear? Nothing near. Don't fear. All clear. That's the life of a soul when you take a patrol. Out in no man's land. Ain't it grand? Out in no man's land. So just an excerpt there from On Patrol in No Man's Land. I'm not sure what year that was recorded, but it had to have been right after World War One or during World War One, right? Yes, and it was recorded uh, with Noble Sissel singing, who, would, who had served with Europe. I was wondering who the singer was. Uh, Noble Sissel, who actually did go on to become more famous. Um, but Jim Europe is an interesting character because he was a mega-celebrity of his time, and for a black man, that was very unusual. Uh, he had fame, he had fortune uh, to give that all up to go fight overseas. And he did demand to fight. I think is very telling of the national spirit that we had back then. You know, that, that would be like Kanye going to Afghanistan now. <laughs> oh, boy. Yeah. Well, same, same in World War II. I mean, you had people like... Um, uh, you had them all. I mean, yeah. the, the great Ted Williams, I was John thinking of. Wayne, yeah. John Wayne became an American icon for playing a soldier. But the irony is the reason he became a star was because all the other stars had gone off to really be soldiers. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Like Gary Cooper, right? Um, didn't Gary he go? Cooper, uh, Jimmy Stewart. Jimmy Stewart. I mean, Glenn Miller. Glenn Miller uh, was lost in a plane crash going overseas. Right. Uh, when I was a kid, I was 20 years old, and I was a production assistant on a sitcom starring Don Rickles. Now, everybody knows Don Rickles as Mr. Comic Insult Guy, but you would never think that when he was a kid, he was on a PT boat in the largest naval battle in world history. You know, this was a time when everybody served, no matter how famous you were. Uh, your country called, and you went. Was that the Battle of Midway you're talking about? No, that was uh, Leyte Gulf. Oh, right, right. Huge one, yeah. Um, wow, I didn't know that. Maybe that's where he learned his chops as an insulter in the Navy. Yeah. <laughs> oh, and he had some stories. By the way, that, that piece we just played by uh, James Reese Europe, or Jim Europe as you're calling him, and his band, um, you know, they're talking about things like grenades and machine guns, poison gas, really horrible stuff. And And they had seen it. They knew just how disgusting and awful trench warfare was and yet there's that jolly tone to the music you know you can see people dancing to it you know like in a club or something i i think unfortunately that is the fate of all of much war music if you listen to old civil war drum and fife songs they're very hippie happy exciting uplifting music yeah and not the kind of music that brings to mind somebody sawing off your leg exactly and they're part of this big lie 
that societies tell to young men marching off to war. You know, it's going to be glorious. It's going to be cool. You're going to come home and have a lot of ladies and live the rest of your life happily ever after. You know, but it's stunning to hear the music about the bloodiest war of its time and and just a a dreadfully, you know, futile war as well. Definitely. I mean, I I think... I think World War One, unfortunately, is the crowning achievement of Western Europe's civilization. <laughs> After 400 years of colonizing and raping the entire world, they ended up destroying each other in a tiny snake of dirt between the North Sea and the Alps. Uh, yeah, you're reminding me of one of the, the characters in your book, one of the members of the 369th Infantry Regiment, uh, talking about white people killing each other. <laughs> Well, it, 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 is, it is a very telling truth about human nature that for some reason we have this desire to destroy what we have built. I, you know, I don't know why. Uh, I don't know if anybody knows why, but there is something in our nature where no matter how high a civilization rises, there is just this urge to break it like a sandcastle. And that's what Europeans did to each other. And, you know, let's, let's not forget that uh, the Europeans at the time looked down their noses at America from a military standpoint. They saw us as a nation of volunteer soldiers, but they were professionals, and they had a professional general staffs, war colleges, war games. This was a continent that had made soldiering an art form, and yet the biggest bloom of that art form was sending young men into walking into each other's machine guns over and over again for year after year. Are you a fan of the uh, the film version of All Quiet on the Western Front? Uh, well, there's two versions. The original. There's the, there's the original, which I thought was brilliant, and then there's the one with Ernie Borgnine and, and John Boy, uh, which I thought was good, too. Uh, but I thought the first one was, was so brutal and so telling. Uh, it was almost as good as Paths of Glory. Uh, yeah, it's funny. I could I could get into a long discussion about why I like uh, All Quiet on the Western Front even more, but they're both great movies. But it was a it was a, a shocking movie for its era. I mean, it was so realistic yeah. on so many levels. You know, everything from the violence of war to you know just things like sex or even crapping your your pants. I mean, it was stuff that movie audiences in America couldn't have been prepared for. No, and I think the irony is that it was it was an honest time and an honest way of looking at war. And if you look at that in contrast to post war World War Two Hollywood. Uh, you see the trauma that it committed on baby boomers when they went to Vietnam. There's actually been this, I remember reading somewhere about how one of the, one of the greatest traumas of Vietnam vets was they had grown up on John Wayne movies. Right, right. So they were shocked to discover what war really was, especially when they thought that going to Vietnam was going to be Sands of Iwo Jima. Mm-hmm. Which, by the way, Iwo Jima wasn't fun either. But no. in the movie, it was pretty good. No, the uh, Clint Eastwood movie is much, much more realistic. <laughs> and I think that, you know, I think that is always what has fascinated me about war, is not the, the glamour of it or the heroism. It's, it's the details of, of daily life, the, the stories my father would tell about rubbing bacon fat on his feet so he wouldn't lose his toes in the cold. Ooh. Uh, you know, the bad food, uh, having to defuse booby-trapped toilets. Uh, those are the stories I grew up with. My my uncle, who was in New Guinea, who never even saw combat because every time he got in the field, he got a new tropical disease. Oh, wow. You know, those those are the stories that have always 
stuck with me. And I think as I get older, now that I have something to live for, now that I'm 42 and have a wife and a kid, it really shocks me, the sacrifice of soldiers, of having to give all that up to go fight. One of the other things I'm doing now is uh, working with this bipartisan commission to try to get a National World War I memorial funded. There isn't one? And, uh, no, not in Washington, D.C. You know, in fact, we didn't really start to build National War memorials uh, till after Vietnam. It was the Vietnam Wall that really started everything. Right. I mean, there's the Iwo Jima Memorial, but that wasn't really conceived, I guess, as the World War II Memorial. Yeah. No. In, in, in fact, that was an, originally meant to honor the Marines. Right, right. And so there, there is this project now to try and fund a World War I Memorial in Pershing Square. And you think that's a good idea? I do. I do. I believe that the First World War is even more important to this country's soul than the Second War. Really? I do, because I believe that all the social change that you saw from the Second War is the harvest of seeds planted in the First. Because the First World War set us on a national track that we've still been walking to this very day, which is that we go to war for ideals. But it's that notion that makes us live up to those ideals at home. I believe that what happens in this grand national debate we've been having since 1917 is we try to make people's lives better and fairer over there, which then makes us question if we're doing all we can to make our lives fair over here. You know, I can see that. I can see that. I mean, it's, it's hypocrisies that are exposed during these, these ventures, you know? Yes. Yeah. And I had, a, I had a conversation with a BBC colleague of mine who joked that Americans just like to be liked. <laughs> uh, which we do, and I think this is something that other countries don't really understand about our unique American culture, which is we do have a concept of fairness. And even though this country is rife with hypocrisy, we do have a very strong desire to erase that. And you do see this drive to fix those hypocrisies in concert with our foreign wars. It's, it's no coincidence the civil rights movement really took off after battling the Nazis. Uh, you know, it's no coincidence that you see uh, the rights for women right after World War I trying to make the world safe for democracy in a country where 50% of our population didn't have it. Uh, and it's no coincidence that you see American soldiers who are gay who are saying, wait, I fought nine tours in Afghanistan to protect the rights of these people, but my husband can't wait at the dock for my ship to come in with all the other husbands because we're both men, that's not what I was fighting for. Mm. Um, so you are working on the screenplay for Harlem Hellfighters in an odd roundabout way. You started out trying to pitch it as a screenplay. You got nowhere. It became a comic book. And now it's actually going to make its way to the screen, it looks like. Yes. Um, what's the story there? What happened was, two weeks before the book came out, uh, Will Smith's company, Overbrook, came to me uh, wanting to option the movie rights, to which, to which I agreed. Uh, I've always liked Will Smith. I've always liked the, the work that he's done. Uh, I am now going to be writing the first draft of the script. I think the key to psychological survival in Hollywood is managed expectations. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I, let, let's put it this way. I'm not picking out what tie I'm going to wear to the premiere yet. <laughs> <laughs> or getting too attached to your script, right? <laughs> exactly. Uh, what I'm doing is I have written, I am working on a first draft, 
when that first draft is done, they may put a new writer on it. They may shelve the project. Uh, they may say, listen, we love the story, but you know what? Uh, the Chinese film market's very lucrative, so can you make them all Chinese? <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Uh, what would chagrin you the most uh, in terms of changing the story? Well, you know, that, that's an excellent question. I don't know yet, because you don't even want to try to anticipate what could go wrong in Hollywood, uh, because you, you never know. I mean, the, the economics of Hollywood have changed very much in the last 10 years, and I, I think we as Americans need to be aware of that. The two-thirds of Hollywood profits come from overseas. Yeah. So it's not a coincidence Optimus Prime is fighting on the Great Wall of China. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, Max, it has been great talking to you, and best of luck with that, uh, that effort to get the thing you know, intact on the screen in, an, in a form that's accurate and true to your book. I do, uh, in spite of myself, have high hopes, only in that um, the story is now more well-known. And Will Smith obviously has a, a tremendous amount of clout within this business. So I, I think that, I think if anyone can get it done, it will be him. Well, here's hoping. Here's hoping. Max Brooks, discussing his book and hopefully movie, The Harlem Hellfighters. This has been the 7th Avenue Project. You can visit us online and listen to past shows at 7thAvenueProject.com or via iTunes or SoundCloud or many podcast apps, including the Stitcher Radio On Demand app. I'm Robert Polly, and uh, before I make my exit, a couple of corrections on things I said earlier. Uh, first of all, Paul Fussell, the uh, literary critic, his memoir is called Doing Battle, The Making of a Skeptic, Not the Making of a Cynic. And I said wrongly that Gary Cooper was among the celebrities who enlisted in the armed forces during World War II. I was wrong. I may have been thinking of Clark Gable, who did join up. Or perhaps Humphrey Bogart, who tried to, they say, but was turned down because he was a bit long in the tooth. Also, uh, a little more information on that song we heard, uh, On Patrol in No Man's Land, by James Reese Europe, one of the Harlem Hellfighters. He actually wrote it uh, while hospitalized after a poison gas attack in the trenches of France. And uh, it was recorded shortly after he and the band returned stateside after the war. And uh, speaking of James Reese Europe, let's go out with another number from him and the 369th U.S. Infantry Hellfighters Band. This is uh, How You Gonna Keep Them Down on the Farm. It was a big hit during the First World War, and as Max Brooks makes clear in the Harlem Hellfighters, uh, its words took on special meaning when sung by black soldiers overseas. How you gonna keep them down on the farm after this scene, Harry? How you gonna keep them away from Broadway, dancing around and painting the town? How you gonna keep them away from harm? That's the mystery. They'll never want to see a rake of cow. And who's the deuce and parley a cow? How you gonna keep them 